If you've listened to this show for a while, you've probably heard me mention that the podcast continues to produce new episodes thanks to listeners like you. I'm able to do all of this in the gift economy by asking those of you who are able to directly support this work. Together, we reach people all around the world with candid conversations about permaculture that you won't find anywhere else. This episode is the final one before the annual fundraiser ends on October 10th, 2017. If you think this show should continue, I'm asking you to donate during these final 10 days so that I can bring you another year of the podcast. As we get started, take a few minutes and make a one-time donation by going to paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast or by dropping something in the post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann, and you're listening to episode 1727, Mastering Cheesemaking with Gianoclis Caldwell. Gianoclis is the author of what is truly a modern classic on cheese production, Mastering Artisan Cheesemaking from Chelsea Green Publishing. She also released another book for anyone who's interested in making cheese at home, Mastering Basic Cheesemaking from New Society Publishers. These books and her expertise form the basis for our conversation today, where we focus on animal cheeses that come from goat, sheep, or cow milk. As this is something that I've only read about but I'm deeply fascinated by, I dive in with all my questions about starting supplies, expected yields, soft versus hard cheeses, the different types of cheese, the different methods for making cheese, as well as an exploration of rennet, including three types to look for and one to avoid. As Gianoclis joined me previously for episode 1724, Holistic Goat Care, we begin with a brief overview of her background, and then get cheesy. Enjoy this conversation, and I'll join you again afterwards. So I grew up on this farm. We milked some dairy cows and made various dairy products, made buttermilk and lots of yogurt, which I evidently, that was my main food source as a young child. And my mom tried making hard cheeses, but uh, wasn't successful at that. And then when we moved away and I followed my husband around in the Marine Corps, was didn't have a dairy animal at the time, but I would buy buy milk and make our own yogurt, make some paneer, which is an Indian-type cheese that I didn't really know I was making cheese, but I knew I was making paneer and uh, did what I could to make our own products in that way. We got to our last duty station down in Fallbrook, California, and had a little more land. And I wanted to get a get a cow again to milk and make make things. But we ended up with goats because our youngest daughter was small, and she wanted to be part of the project. And and uh, she could definitely handle a goat, but not a cow. So we got the goats, but I knew there would be more milk than we could drink. So I started learning to make cheese, and this was back in only 2003, but at that time there were only two books out, literally just two books on cheesemaking that were modern books anyway, and meant for the home cheesemaker, and one of those was Ricky Carroll's iconic home cheesemaking books, which is you know still one of the best ones out there for getting started. And so I got that, and I, I bought milk even before we got the goats to try to practice the cheese making, and it was just so much fun. It was it was like magic. I'd, I'd been a soap maker for some time, and I've always loved science, and it was just, you know, it's chemistry. It's converting this liquid into this solid that doesn't taste really much like the liquid did, and just so versatile, and it made you feel really good also to please people by giving them a good food you'd made and 
at the time I was a, a professional artist and I was doing artwork that you know I could relate to and I hoped other people would identify with, but it was always a big, big iffy thing when you'd have a show if anybody would get what you were trying to say. And with food, when you make food, everybody can get it. And it was so gratifying. And I thought, I really like to do this. I like to do something that's very artistic because making hard-aged cheeses takes a lot of time, a lot of attention to detail, both science and art. And then you really please people and they can relate to it. So I got addicted to the cheese making and we were able to move back to some family land in 2005 and build our little uh, licensed dairy called Folia Farm. We named it Folia, P-H-O-L-I-A, after our two daughters, Phoebe and Amelia. We had to have a name for your goat herd that wasn't taken, and uh, that was our way to, to come up with one that nobody else had. But, so we, we did that and uh, made the cheese commercially for 10 years. It just took us places we never never realized it would, with, with uh, book writing, and my husband's on the board of the American Cheese Society, and I'll be judging cheeses this year at their big competition. And Our life is just cheesy. When you started out making cheese, was that from cow's milk exclusively, or were you doing both cow and goat? I started with cow milk, but then when I got the book and knew we were getting goats, I made the mistake of buying some commercially produced goat milk. Uh, it was like, you know, a well-known major brand of goat milk that you can buy, and it was so goaty tasting, and as we talked about before, that isn't true of properly collected goat milk, but boy, did it uh, make an impact. And, and in fact, uh, some neighbors who had goats tried to feed one of their goats some of that milk, and it, a baby goat, and it wouldn't even drink it. So, <laughs> uh, But anyway, so I did start with some purchased milk, but our goats started producing milk right away when we got them. They were due to have babies, and uh, so then very quickly switched to that. And when you make cheese... Goat milk, cow milk, any milk, there's no specific recipe for that breed, that species. It's more about understanding the nuances of each individual milk. And uh, you just start with any recipe for goat milk. It, it's very versatile. The only thing that's, hard, that's really difficult goat milk is butter because the cream doesn't separate easily. That was a question I had because I've never seen goat cream available so I was wondering if it was like naturally homogenized and didn't separate out like that. In reality, it isn't naturally homogenized. So that's a mechanical process. But it lacks a protein, a cryoglobulin, that causes cream, the milk fat globule, to clump. So that protein is in cow's milk. So it makes those fat globules start sticking together and then they'll rise because they're, you know, they're denser. So they come to the top goat milk cream will eventually separate and then you can skim it and collect it and make butter from that or people will use a cream separator to get the cream off. But a goat butter, I, and I've made it several times, it's very unbuttery butter. It lacks the same aroma and flavor that the cow's milk butter does, which is from the compound diacetyl, which is what they add to like popcorn to make it taste buttery. So goat milk doesn't really seem to have much of that and it doesn't 
isn't a buttery butter, and it's also pure white. It looks a bit like Crisco, which is not very appetizing to put on things. It's funny, we're so color-oriented, you know, like a, a white strawberry, even if it tastes ripe, doesn't taste ripe because our, our brain just tells us it's not correct. <laughs> oh, that's interesting, those little differences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can make it, but it's it's really just easier just to appreciate the milk as whole milk and not worry about the butter. But if you love butter, you do miss that. And what is the fat content of goat's milk? Goat's milk varies in fat content based on breed, as, as it does with cow's milk, uh, and as a similar spectrum. So the highest butterfat breed in the goat world is the Nigerian dwarf, and they'll average about 6%, and sometimes like some of my goats have shot up to get ready for this, 11% fat in the winter, which is almost legally half and half, by the way. And then with the, the lightest goat milk being produced by the Saanen breed, which is down around two and a half to three percent. So it's a, it's a similar range to like the Holstein cow has the lowest fat milk naturally. And then the Jersey cow, the highest fat of the major dairy breeds. And those fat profiles are similar between goats and cows? Yeah, they are. In fact, a lot of the components, which we, when you say components, you mean the butter fat protein and lactose are similar, and there's the same amount of lactose, almost the same in goat's milk as in cows. So if people truly have lactose intolerance, goat milk will not help them. There's a lot of misunderstanding about lactose intolerance, and you might think that's what your problem is, but it could be a protein issue. It could be a digestion of the fats issue. So it's hard to say unless you've really pinpointed your problem. As someone with celiac disease, I understand how difficult it can be to pinpoint those kinds of dietary issues. Yes, and uh, on that note, though, with lactose, for we forget that the aged cheeses of all types have no lactose in them. So, if you are lactose intolerant or you know are on that spectrum, fermented dairy products are going to be progressively lower in lactose the longer they've been aged and fermented. So even yogurt, if you make yogurt and then drain the yogurt, you'll be reducing the lactose content because the bacteria will have digested most of it and then you'll remove the rest in the whey. So uh, it can be a way to utilize your dairy products even with some, some lactose intolerance. One of the things that I usually see when I go to the grocery store is that most of the goat cheeses that I find are soft. And actually, I shouldn't say most of them. I don't think that I've ever seen a hard or aged goat cheese. But from what you're saying, because you can use any recipe, that's perfectly a possibility. It's just not what I'm finding in my stores. Here at Folia Farm, that's all we made were hard aged goat cheeses. And in my books, I teach making milk cheese from all different kinds of milk. And when I do consultations and things, I consult for all different types of species of cheesemakers. I should say not species of cheesemakers, but uh, milk species. So yet there are differences in each that can make a certain cheese type your best choice for production. Soft, fresh cheeses, many of the goat breeds, that's their best cheese because they, they lack the protein type that will help make a hard-aged cheese a bit better. So it just depends on the breed, and then it also depends a lot on the skill set of the cheesemaker. But, you know, you think about soft, fresh cheeses of any cow or goat milk, 
there's a quicker turnaround and there's a lot more moisture. So it can can be your bread and butter product, uh, whereas if you're going to make a, an aged cheese, you know, like some of my cheeses aged for a year, year and a half, uh, they're not going to make me a lot more money by doing that. They're going to be a lot more work and they're going to lose more moisture. So for me, I was very fortunate to be able to make those because I wanted to. But if we'd had some big bills to pay or something, it could have been a bad business choice. <laughs> but I, I had the luxury of being able to make the cheeses that entertained me the most in their process. And, of course, were in some ways the bigger knock-your-socks-off cheeses for people being amazed at. What were some of those cheese varieties that you were making that knocked people's socks off? I'd have to say that I think I limited, pretty much limited what I made to something I thought would do that. And these were not recipes like I I can't say I made a cheddar or a gouda. And I I encourage cheesemakers and I encourage cheese buyers to never ask a cheesemaker, like if you're at the farmer's market and you're trying a new cheese, don't ask the cheesemaker, what is it? Ask them how they made it or what would this be similar to? Because uh, most of the time we're emulating European cheeses that have a right to call themselves that, whereas we might not have that same right, whether it's a a regionally produced cheese and uh, like Parmigiano-Reggiano or Camembert. You can't really make Camembert here. You're making something like Camembert, (laughs) but uh, learn about the categories of cheese making and in my books, I do take the approach of the foundation processes so that you can see where in the family tree of cheese every recipe falls and all the different ways you can tweak it and take it in a different direction. Or the milk might take you in a different direction. Um, milk is very seasonal. It changes year-round and uh, your farm, what it brings to the, the game as far as flavors go and even things, bacteria and things that are in the air are going to change the aging process. And it's it's a very volatile, moving target to make cheese, aged cheeses especially, as you're dealing with all these nuances. And you have to enjoy that challenge because it's definitely going to be a part of it. But I, I find people that really love cheese making, that's what they're really getting getting into because of the, it keeps you thinking, it keeps you active in your, you know, your brain and all the steps. And as long as we're using an animal milk, be it cow, goat, or sheep, we can work on creating any of these fermented cheese products from yogurt and kefir to like a hard grating cheese that we might pair with pasta? Yeah, absolutely. And you can do all of those at the home scale. The cheeses I made commercially, I made just as well at home. And that's kind of, at first, that really blows your mind because growing up here in the United States, usually you associate all these products with a factory. You associate them with somebody who's been doing it for a long time and on a large scale, and it really has nothing to do with that. It's it's pretty basic steps that you just need to monitor in a on a ongoing basis and to turn out some really amazing cheese. And I think of my friends who I know who are cheesemakers and brewers and mead makers and all those folks who work in the realm of fermentation. We're all kind of nerdy about it. And so a lot of times there's a lot of equipment. And I remember a friend of mine, he built like five or six different cheese presses to get one right. So when you look at what he has among his cheese making supplies and his brewing supplies, it's just like a room full of stuff. But it sounds like from what you're saying that 
it doesn't take a lot to get started and that we should just go ahead and get some of the core supplies and begin making cheese or yogurt or one of these other products that interests us? Yeah, it doesn't take a lot to get started and it doesn't take a lot to keep going. Here at Folia Farm, we called what we did high-tech primitive. So we understand a lot of science way into food safety, but with the most simple, basic implements and not a lot of investment in equipment. When I wrote my book and when I wrote the basic book, I try to show people how you you don't even need a cheese press. I only made hard-aged cheeses and I never had a press. I had um, water jugs for weight and a ratcheting strap that would go around a table and cinch it down onto the cheese because I, I don't need a press. I just need pressure. So you can buy a lot of things if you want, but you don't have to. So I find that the engineering type cheesemaker, he is going to probably design a press that's going to tell him how many pounds per square inch is being exerted simply because it's fun for him. But if you're not that kind of person, you can just look at the way that you're squeezing out of the cheese and have it tell you if you're putting enough pressure on there. So it definitely can meet the geeky needs of many of us (laughs) over a spectrum. For someone who's just getting started, in addition to having a copy of your Mastering Beginning Cheese Making, what basic supplies and ingredients would they need to start making cheese? So you will need a, a couple of cultures, and I tried to limit in the basic cheese making book, Mastering Basic Cheese Making, I purposefully kept the number of things you need to buy down to a minimum because I understand that confusion. You know, you go to a catalog and there's so many options. You just don't know where to start. So I, I started with two culture types, some rennet. I use microbial vegetarian rennet and a little cheesecloth is all you need and some milk, of course, <laughs> and some salt. And uh, it can be any salt you can purchase as long as it doesn't have iodine or anti-caking agent. So it doesn't have to be labeled cheese salt. Any good salt will work. We use sea salt here at our farm. So those are all you really need to make cheese. And if you had enough high-quality raw milk with the right bacteria in it, you wouldn't even need the starter culture. But honestly, a lot of really high-quality raw milk these days is almost, in quotes, too clean to have enough bacteria in it to ferment the milk quickly. Because you want to ferment the milk within a certain number of hours to get the acid level high enough to prevent the growth of the contaminating bacteria, which will also be in there. When milk is collected, you're contaminating it. There's just no way around it. And you're contaminating it with some good bacteria too, but you just have to assume that there are going to be some unwanted little guys in there also. Jeremy Zimmerman, who's you know a friend and colleague that wrote Make Mead Like a Viking is all about wild fermentation of making mead. It sounds like if you have enough of the local wild bacteria that you could ferment milk naturally as well? Yes, uh, there are some tests you can do really easily, you know, without lab equipment. You just need a little incubator of some sort to determine that. And I do cover that in my book, Small Scale Dairy. Because it's a way to determine if your milk's too clean, if you have coliform contamination, which would be indicative of maybe some manure in the milk, or whether you're collecting a lot of good bacteria. And uh, typically what you'll do if you want to make your own culture is sterilize a jar, collect some milk, 
hold it at 95 degrees, and based on this test, you can determine if you have enough of the good stuff. But you have to know that that's going to change on a daily basis. So you would then take the milk that you've created this nice culture and use it to be your cheese starter. And then you would keep either some whey and make cheese every day using that to inoculate the next batch. But it, it has to be done with some knowledge and awareness of potential risks. And you need to be making cheese pretty much every day. So for most cheesemakers, that's not very realistic. And, uh, you know, I, I mentioned in our last talk that this farmer, as you well know, has so much to do every day that's very important that um, sometimes you, you decide, okay, am I going to compromise my ideal of making my own culture and buy culture so that I can get out there and take care of the animals better? You know, so it's, I think, running a small business with livestock there are just going to be compromises and you have to find out where your comfort level is in performing those, you know, so that you're not compromising risk and your livelihood too. And with the basic ingredients that you mentioned, because it does sound like a better place to start for us is in the kitchen with some commercial products just to begin with um, and get comfortable with this process. You mentioned that you need a culture to start with? Yes, and that culture can be simple as some buttermilk from the store. Cultured buttermilk that isn't hasn't been on the shelf too long is going to have a lot of active bacteria. Yogurt, kefir. The kefir from the grocery store is not kefir from grains, so it's not going to have this. It's going to be more like a buttermilk-type culture or a yogurt-type culture. So if it says live active cultures on it, a person can use that. A yogurt, though, is going to be a higher temperature incubation. So you'll need to understand that. So buttermilk is your best bet if you just want to buy something real quick and, and give it a try. And you say higher temperature. So that would be putting the milk into a stock pot, getting it to a certain temperature, monitoring that with a thermometer and holding that temperature for a while to get the bacteria to um, ferment the milk. Most cheese bacteria like the temperature right around 95 to 100 degrees. High temperature products like yogurt and a lot of the Italian-type cheeses, you're incubating more around 110 to 120. So, you know, you, you think about all these bacteria, and they all have their optimal growth ranges. So depending on what you're adding to the milk or what's already in the milk, you select for those by holding that milk at the right temperature for those bacteria. And then they're what are going to create all these flavors. And you know, so uh, for the maker making a raw milk cheese, we're still going to add some starter culture, but we're also going to have the growth of that raw milk bacteria. So even if it wasn't quite enough to get that initial acid development, if there wasn't enough of the raw milk bacteria, it's still going to provide amazing flavor production and ripening during aging. Great raw milk can be your... You know, Best, your secret weapon, you know, your best quality for your cheese. And we've had a huge expansion of raw milk in Pennsylvania, and I know other places within the country, and there are options like cow shares in different places where we can get fresh raw milk, so that that's a lot easier than it used to be. Yes, and, and with any milk, for the cheese maker, for if you're, if you're collecting milk for your home use, always remind yourself, this is one of my favorite sayings, milk was never meant to see the light of day. Nature designed milk to go directly into the mouth of a baby and from there to the stomach where it was acidified 
and coagulated and processed by enzymes. So when you try to hold it in any stasis, it's going to be reduced in quality. That could be safety. That could be flavor. It could be both. So when you make cheese, if you make cheese immediately from the fresh raw milk, you know, don't even chill it, you're emulating the baby because you're acidifying it, you're adding enzymes, you're coagulating it, which is what the baby's stomach does. That's why it can be so safe. But when you buy milk that's chilled, held, all of that, there is reduction of quality. So you need to understand what good milk production looks like. And Small Scale Dairy, the book I wrote, was meant for that, for people who want to buy raw milk or produce raw milk. Because it can be a wonderful food or it can be deadly. You know, it's just that must be acknowledged and there's no there's no silver bullet. There's no one food that's safe and perfect for everything. So a total believer in raw milk, but with all those caveats of knowledge and understanding it. You mentioned that when the milk would hit, hit the baby's stomach that it would then coagulate. Is that the role of rennet in cheese production? Yeah, it is. So you have three categories of cheese production, three basic ways to make cheese. Your first is by high heat added acid, where you heat the milk up and you drop in some acid, vinegar, lemon juice, something like that. So ricotta, paneer, uh, quite a few cheeses in the world are made that way. They're spontaneous, they're fast, they're tasty. Then you have added bacteria, slow acid, where like yogurt, buttermilk, and kefir, where you're going to add bacteria and let the milk ferment slowly. Then you have the category of high pH, added bacteria, but rennet coagulated. So those cheeses, you're going to just slightly acidify, you know, add the bacteria, let a little bit of acid be produced. Then you're adding the enzyme that is commonly just referred to as rennet that will coagulate the proteins by changing the way they behave so that they link up into this little network of chains and capture the butter fat and start pushing water out. Then that curd which is formed by pushing all that water out, is collected and pressed or drained, and more whey is expelled. Then it continues to ferment. So the, the vast amount of acid production in those cheese types takes place after they're coagulated, whereas in the other two, the acid and the coagulation are, occur at the same time. So the rennet coagulated cheeses are the vast majority of cheeses in the world, they're the more complex to make, but they're the only ones that can age a long time and that can develop those really, you know, complex flavors. So you, those three basic categories and then within those, you know, great variation and some crossover into those other processes. So rennet originally was collected from the stomach, the fourth compartment of a baby ruminant. So a calf, a kid, a lamb. All of them have just the right enzymes in their stomach to coagulate the milk. When the baby ruminant drinks milk, it goes past all the other chambers and right into their stomach, and it curdles. It's amazing. It actually makes cheese curds. I have a picture in the book, my goat book, of, of that happening because it's, it's just it's profound. They are the first cheese makers. 
So you can harvest that stomach if you butcher a young ruminant and make your own rennet. I have a blog post on how to do that, and it it works beautifully. It's it's amazing. But you can also purchase traditional rennet or microbial rennet to use. And that microbial rennet is the rennet that we see advertised as vegetarian rennet? Yes, it usually. So vegetarian rennet could be either microbial or vegetable, and it's almost always microbial. There are some vegetable rennets made typically from the cardoon thistle, and that can be purchased now, uh, you know, in a, in a standardized form. The microbial rennets come in two categories. One is basically called mucor mihai, which is a, a mouthful, but it's the one that's produced by microbes that produce a, an enzyme that does this naturally. The one that most of us avoid is called fermented chymosin, C-H-Y-M-O-I-S-N, S-I-N, and that is made from genetically engineered microbes that produce the same enzyme that the calf does. So these microbes have had that gene from the kid or calf spliced into them, and then they produce this enzyme. So it's an engineered product are it's produced by engineered microbes, I should say. It's not labeled GMO because, or couldn't be because it itself isn't engineered, but it's produced by engineered microbes. Yeah, yeah, that was easy to understand. Huh? <laughs> well, now it reminds me because of something that I ran across years ago is that an artificial flavoring or coloring can be chemically identical to a natural flavoring or coloring but because the feedstock that produces it comes from artificial sources, it's an artificial coloring or flavoring. But you can have something that is labeled a natural flavoring or synthetic, something that doesn't occur in nature, but if it comes from naturally occurring feedstock to produce it, it's still considered a natural end product. Right. So <laughs> it's something important to know, but I'm glad though that you mentioned those differences because that's what I really am enjoying about this conversation for me as someone who's been interested in this for years, but it always, it never was quite approachable for me because of all of these little questions that I've had about things like rennet and the role that it had and the different types and those distinctions and the way that you just detailed, you know, the three different types of cheeses plus the three different types of possible vegetarian rennet, both from bacteria and vegetable sources. And it's, it's great. I love it. It all is covered in the book. I don't have a PhD. I love to learn. I love to study. And sometimes these the things that are written by the experts are so hard to understand for folks like myself that I wanted to be able to give all that information in a way that people like myself could understand. We want to know, too, just because we, we may not want to use five syllables per word, we still can learn. So I, I did want to explain all of that science, hopefully in a way that Everybody gets it, and it's approachable. And I certainly think that the way that you lay all of your information out and guide us through all this does just that, even in your mastering artisan cheese making. Between you and your one Chelsea Green co-author, David Asher, the two of you, I think, have written like the modern books on what someone needs to make cheese and really do it on a home scale. And your book and some of the others that I've been able to work through from Chelsea Green have kind of put me in that place now that all the all the dots are finally being connected and it makes sense in ways that it never did before and I really appreciate that. So when are you going to make your first batch? I'm actually thinking that I might try to do one of the high heat added acids with my children this weekend. Oh good, yeah. 
Yeah, do the paneer type and, and because it's just it's you can grill it, you can it's just so versatile. I do have a few more questions um, for folks who are interested in getting started, just so that I understand some of the processes a bit better. The basic ingredients that you mentioned when it comes to cheesecloth, is that mostly just to be able to hold the curds and press out that extra whey? Exactly, yeah. Any fabric that will let the whey out and keep the curds in can be your cheesecloth. So sometimes people have something lying around that will work for that, an old pillowcase or a tea towel that's getting a little transparent looking in places. But if you're going to buy cheesecloth, you'll want to, my recommendation is to purchase the 120 thread count that's called, you know, that's called cheesecloth, but you'll most likely have to order it online. Some things are labeled butter muslin, which really doesn't mean much of anything other than it's usually 90 thread count, which is also okay from some cheeses. But you definitely don't want the cheesecloth that comes from the grocery store or the fabric store. That's only good for draining uh, soup stocks and things like that. It's definitely not for making cheese. I made a yogurt-fermented soda once and just used a tea towel and poured the yogurt in and tied that up over a bowl. And that was enough to release what I needed. And then I kind of had something more like a a Greek-style yogurt, which I had not had yet because it wasn't commercially available at the time. Yeah, and that's what, what I say I mentioned earlier about... When you're pressing a cheese, you watch the way that liquidy portion coming off of the curd, if it's looking opaque, you're, you're either using too much pressure or your cloth is too porous. So, you know, just learn the nuances of looking at the cheese. And in my little Mastering Basic Cheese Making book, what I took the approach of, cause I thought, oh, there's so many beginning cheese making books out there. How would I want it different if I were to read one? And I said, well, I would like one that would take me one cheese at a time and build on my knowledge. So instead of a group of recipes that's of a certain type, you know, like um, Italian-style cheeses or this type of cheeses, I want one sequence that builds so that by the time you're done, you understand the whole picture. Not necessarily all the deep science, but you're totally ready for that. So that's that's what I did. It's like if if you came out and hang with hang out with me, said Giannicle, teach me to make cheese. We have four weeks. Let's make a cheese a day. This would be how I would do it. Twenty eight cheeses in twenty eight days. Yeah, and I actually should count up the recipes because I'm not really sure how many lessons are in there. <laughs> <laughs> but just in a way, so you can add a skill, you can add a piece of the puzzle as you go along. I'll admit it's one of the reasons why I always like the cookbooks from Alton Brown is because of his kind of like nerdy science and that he builds on different techniques to get us from the beginning to the end and really teaches us everything we need to know to be a good cook. And it sounds like you've done something like that where we can kind of build a skill set as cheesemakers. Well, and, and that really is the way to do it, isn't it? Is how many people, how many of us who love to cook measure anymore? You start out with all these parameters and then as you learn, you realize where you, what you can do on your own. And, and that's cheese making too. You had mentioned salt. Is that just for flavor or is that also to control fermentation? Yes and yes. In some cases, over the fresh cheeses, such as what you're going to make, the salt is strictly for flavor. And in that case, so you have to ask yourself, I'm gonna, is this cheese to be eaten in a day or two? And if so, then you can use any salt. You could even use that iodized salt I mentioned not to use. So that is strictly for flavor. If the cheese is meant to age, then the salt is for the reduction of acid production, helping the cheese drain its last little bit of whey out. 
and preservation. So you need then a salt that's not going to have additives. Um, iodine will will uh, kill the bacteria that are still growing in there. So you need a pure salt for that. And when it comes to milk, we've talked that you know you can use cow or goat or really any animal milk that you can get your hands on. Is there anything in particular that we should look for, or can I just grab a bottle of my pasteurized, homogenized whole milk and go? Yeah, definitely. Milk is the hardest thing to find the best quality of. Grocery store milk of many varieties will work just fine. Pasteurized works. Ultra-pasteurized will not. Uh, That has been treated at too high of a heat to allow for a good rennet coagulation. Homogenized milk will work, but homogenization itself, that mechanical process of uh, reducing the size of those fat globules, will make for a weaker curd. So a lot of folks will do better by buying a skim milk and then adding a little bit of cream But you have to find a cream that doesn't have added thickeners and dextrose. So um, the milk I'm particularly fond of recommending to people now that's usually available all over the U.S. is Organic Valley's grass milk, which is uh, all grass-fed, non-homogenized milk. It's a little more expensive, but uh, if you're pretty sure your cheese is going to be, uh, if you're ready for it, it's worth it. If it's a local fresh raw milk, make sure it's super fresh. It shouldn't be more than a day or two old, ideally. And uh, that is going to be, of course, your best source. I tell folks, though, you know, I got started with just homogenized, pasteurized, store-bought milk. And in a way, it's like when you're learning, if you learn to sew, you don't start with your best silk. You know, you're going to start with some cotton that you can make some mistakes with. So those milks will work. They won't be your very best cheeses. But if you're not ready to put pop down, you know, $12 a gallon or whatever for milk that you might mess up, feel comfortable using that jug of milk from the grocery store. And it is still going to turn into something probably better than you could buy as a cheese, <laughs> perhaps. And from a gallon of milk, like what amounts of cheese could someone expect to produce? Yeah, we call this the yield. So from a a gallon of milk, and we'll just say, you know, the average type of milk, for a fresh soft cheese, like a chevre or a um, fromage blanc, you're going to bid about a pound and a half to two pounds. For a hard cheese that's drained and pressed, you're going to get just under a pound to a pound. So yeah, not a lot. And this is uh, then that that will bring up to the next question: What do you do with the whey? Because if you have ten gallons of milk, you're going to get one gallon of cheese and nine gallons of whey. So it's a lot of liquid. In mastering basic cheese making, I had that question so many times. And like I said, I wrote the beginning book after the advanced book, so I kind of did things backwards. But I, in that one, I did address that because in those three categories of cheese types the whey will be very different and useful for different things. But it's going to range from uh, the type of cheese you're going to make, Scott, is going to have the most useless whey. It'll just be a little bit of acid and lactose. So you can put that on around acid-loving plants, fir trees, you know, berry bushes, things like that. You can use it in place of any liquid, soup stocks, things like that. You want to keep it cold and use it fresh if possible. In the middle type, you're going to have a few more nutrients, and that would be the long coagulation. 
cheese. You're going to have a few more nutrients in that. And so you could feed that to chickens and it'll have some protein and some other things in it. And then the hard aged cheese is going to produce the whey that has the highest protein content. From that, you could make a, a whey protein drink. You could make some true whey ricotta. And it's definitely a nutritious food for pigs and chickens. Those words, a true way ricotta, have sparked my interest. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, the word ricotta actually means recooked. So it's made from the real ricotta, original ricotta. The whey, that 10 gallons, that 9 gallons of whey from making your 1 gallon of Parmesan would be heated up and at about 180 or so, the whey proteins that have been lost during the cheesemaking process and are still there in the whey will spontaneously coagulate and rise to the surface. So you get this very small amount, but this really amazing kind of light, fluffy, I always kind of think of it as like warm ice cream because it's got the sweetness of lactose and it's got the, it's a little bit caramelized from the high heat, but it's a lot of protein too. So it's it's a very intriguing product to find and Obviously, I gave you some recipes for that. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's great because it's one of our favorite things to eat as a family is we'll do homemade lasagna. And you can always find me and my kids with our spoons, even just the commercial ricotta, our spoons in there eating that because of that slightly sweet, you know, creamy flavor. Oh. Well, wait till you try your own homemade ricotta and then it'll knock the socks. I like that term, I guess. It'll, <laughs> it'll, it'll knock the socks off the other type of ricotta, the whole cow's milk from the store. Oh, this is great. Well, thank you for giving me, just in our conversation and through the books that you've written, the confidence and comfort of feeling that I can go off and make my own cheeses and try some things, make some mistakes, and see what happens. Right. Yeah, you're welcome. But as we closed our last conversation, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? Oh, gosh. You know, cheese cheese will bring you all sorts of different friends, <laughs> You know, even if it's people that just want to eat your cheese. Lots of folks will say, ah, I would buy this, but, uh, you know, enjoy it. And then when you buy cheeses from other cheesemakers, I know you'll appreciate what they're doing more. And uh, and if we all want to support that, it'll help a lot of folks. So, oh, I know my last final word, too, is help me change the word cheesy to a very, very complimentary adjective rather than a derogatory one. So if you see me and you like my hairstyle, please tell me it looks cheesy. Well, thank you for making this so accessible and adding levity to this idea of cheese and home production. I really appreciate the time that you've spent with me through both of our interviews. Thank you. And that was Giannaclise Caldwell. Find out more about her and her books at giannaclisecaldwell.com. You'll find a link to that and her publishers in the show notes. As you heard during this conversation, I'm really inspired by people like Gianna Cleese that take these ideas that, at first seem so complex, and break down that mystery into easy steps we can follow. Sure, we might make mistakes or have some failures, but we can take what we learn and try again. And that getting started doesn't have to be expensive. Using what she shared with us today, we can grab that $4 gallon of store-bought commercial cow milk and make our first pound of cheese. If we want, then we can seek out that rich, grass-fed, organic, or raw milk, or even try sheep or goat milk, and see how that changes what we get. But if we don't want to, we never have to. We can keep using that same 
grocery store jug, while also knowing that we're creating a food that we control the ingredients for, and probably wind up getting something better than store-bought. And though I walked away from this really inspired, I haven't made any of my own cheese yet, as my children keep looking at me every time that I bring it up with that, Dad, really? Kind of look. But I do feel comfortable and confident that when we get there, we'll wind up with not only some great cheese, whether it's ricotta or mozzarella for our family's lasagna, or maybe we'll dare and try to make a hard cheese, but whatever comes from it, we'll also have a fond memory. And those experiences are the ones that we need in order to create the world we want to live in. And so I encourage each of you to keep playing, keep trying, pick something that you've always wanted to do and go for it, whether in the kitchen, the garden, field, or forest. Find those moments to speak to you, and then add something to your set of skills and work on becoming the person who you're called to. In doing that, if there's any way I can help you on your journey, my door is always open to get in touch. 717-827-6266, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or drop something in the post, The Permaculture Podcast, PO Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Oh, and before I get to the next interview that's coming up, there was one thing that I mentioned during the conversation, which was about making a yogurt-fermented soda. I was inspired to do that based on a recipe in Rachel Kaplan's Urban Homesteading. You'll find her and more about that at urban-homesteading.org. From here, the next episode, out on October 7th for Patreon supporters and general release on October 10th, is my interview with Victor Zonders of localfoodnodes.org. He and his partners are creating a service to directly connect farmers and consumers. That's what we sit down and talk about, as well as how you can get involved with that project and form a local food node near you. But until then, spend each day living the life you want, creating the world that you want to see by taking care of earth, yourself, and your community.